That's Revelation chapter 4, starting at verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all round and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelations 5, starting at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What is at the center of history? What is at the center of history? It's a very bold question. Uh, Any answer that you thought of to this question would have to be so monumentally significant that it could divide history in two. If the next iPhone advert came on your televisions and said, iPhone 15, the center of history, we'd be pretty skeptical about that. Or if a celebrity went on TV and said, actually, I'm the center of history, we'd probably start to question their sanity at the center of history, it is an outrageously bold claim, perhaps even an arrogant claim. But for many years, much of the world has put Jesus at the very center of history. Our dates are divided into BC, before Christ, and AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who's ever written the date at the top of an email or the top of an essay was writing it as a statement of faith. But our society and culture have been so shaped by the claim that Jesus' life and death are the most significant event in history, worthy of dividing history in two. And even more bold, if it's possible, is the claim that Jesus is worthy of worship, worthy of being at the center of each and every one of our lives. That's a big claim to make about a carpenter who lived in an out-of-the-way place in the Middle East. And as Easter approaches, the question becomes even more pressing. Because not only did Jesus, this man, live, but he died and died a painful, shameful criminal's death on a cross. How could that be the center of history? How could that Jesus be worthy of worship. Well, Revelation that we've just heard was written to a group of churches in Turkey that were wrestling with just that question. They were increasingly under pressure for worshipping Jesus. For their claim that Jesus was not only worthy of worship, but he was the only one worthy of worship. Not the emperor, not other gods. And they were under pressure for following a man who died a weak and shameful death. How arrogant, people must have said. How pathetic. And the question is, how would these churches endure under that sort of pressure? How would they keep going with Jesus? And God's answer was to give John, 
a glimpse into heaven, a glimpse into the heart of all reality. Flip back with me to Revelation chapter four, if you've left it behind, and have a look at chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Uh, These chapters are filled with imagery and Old Testament references galore. uh, So don't worry about following all of the detail. Uh, But the big thing that we're being shown in these chapters is history from a heavenly perspective. Uh, This is a fresh take on the history of the world. And that's what he means by what must take place after this. Uh, And right at the center, right at the center are the events of Easter, uh, the shameful death and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, John wants us to see that, that it really does change everything. But before we get to Easter, we need to see what things were like beforehand. Uh, Chapter four sets the scene. It shows us life BC before Christ. And the big point is this. The goal of history is the worship of God. God deserves to be worshipped. So the goal of history is the worship of God. So John sees this door in heaven. He steps through it. And what he sees is absolutely mind-blowing. It's a mega vision, a greatest hits compilation of all of the visions of God in the Old Testament. Uh, John gets the full audio visual experience. There's color, jasper, carnelian, rainbow. There's strobe lighting. There's full surround sound, rumblings and peals of thunder. Uh, But one thing stands out and that's God's throne. Look down at verse two. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. You see, you just can't miss the throne in this chapter. It's repeated 14 times. The whole vision is centered on it, who's on it, who's around it, what's coming out from it. It's as if John's eye just keeps getting drawn back to the throne. Uh, This is God's throne room that he's seeing. Uh, There are others in the vision. There are living creatures and I think angelic elders on thrones. But God's throne is at the very center If you've seen Star Trek, um, they're at most the bridge crew around the edge. Uh, God is right there in the middle in the captain's chair. Uh, What John's seeing is the control center at the heart of reality. And there is absolutely no doubt that God is in charge. And how is everyone else in this picture responding? Worship. In verse six, the throne is surrounded by these strange angelic living creatures and they're covered in eyes. Uh, You hear of teachers that have eyes in the back of their heads. They just know what's going on behind them, even if they're not looking. Um, Well, verse six says, these creatures are full of eyes. Uh, They're full of eyes in front and behind. And I'm not sure what that would have looked like, uh, but I think it means that they can see really very well. Uh, They know what they're on about. We can trust what they say. And what are they saying? Verse eight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These creatures who can see absolutely everything are praising God continuously, 
these creatures with full of eyes, they can see that he is utterly holy, utterly set apart, utterly pure. Uh, They've looked all around creation and they can see that there are no rivals to God. Uh, There really is none like him. And so they say what they see, holy, holy, holy. And the worship spreads throughout heaven. It's like worship dominoes. Uh, The living creatures, they give glory. And then these 24 elders surrounding the throne, they fall flat on their faces in reverence, casting their crowns before God and crying out, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, There's something so right about this picture. Uh, God is in charge, he's on the throne, and he's receiving worship. As we hear it read, uh, it feels like we're meant to join in. Uh, And that's because this is what the whole of creation was meant to be like. Uh, Worship is what creation is made for. Uh, Listen to what the elders say again in verse 11. Uh, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You see, God created the whole world, including us. And the right response to that loving creation, that loving gift of life, is worship. God is worthy of worship. It's pictured here as singing and bowing and casting crowns, uh, which might be a bit of an alien picture, uh, but worship is more than that. Uh, At heart, worship is saying, God, you're in charge. I'm going to listen to what you say, and I'm going to live all of my life for you. That's at heart what worship is, and that's what the whole of creation should be doing. Yes, in singing, but also in living lives worthy of God. In their words and in their actions, joining in this chorus of praise, saying, holy, holy, holy. But there's a problem in chapter four. Creation isn't joining in. Remember the dominoes, the angelic living creatures, they praise. The elders, they call creation to sing praises of God and then... There's a gap. Nothing happens. God isn't praised. They say creation join in, but nothing happens. And it's a gap that's been there since the very beginning when humanity turned our backs on God. Instead of worship, instead of obedience to God's loving rule, uh, we went our own way. It's a worship gap that the churches in Turkey, they would have seen. Uh, What were the people around them worshipping? Uh, Not the one true God of the Bible, but other gods. They would have been worshipping idols, the emperor, themselves, money. And it's a worship gap that we see today as well. As we look around London, as we look around our city, our schools, our offices, who is being worshipped? I think most people are living as if their creator really doesn't matter. If anyone's doing anything like worship... Uh, It's worshipping money, uh, or more commonly, myself, me, not me, but I. Uh, I do what I want, when I want, because I'm in charge. Who is worthy of worship? I think the most common answer in London is probably, I am, me. 
And that's life BC, from basically the beginning of creation. God deserves the worship of creation, but he isn't worshipped. John has seen into heaven. God is worshipped there. But how will that worship make its way down to earth? How will this worship that we see in Revelation chapter 4 make it into London, into Europe, into the world? How will creation come to praise the God who made it? And that's the goal of history, God receiving the worship he deserves. But how? And that's when we meet the scroll. Look down at chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. This scroll is God's plan for human history. God's plan, God's master plan to bring the worship that exists in heaven down to earth. It's God's plan to make all creation praise him. But there's a problem. No one can do it. Chapter 5, verse 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Who is worthy to carry out this plan? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one. It's no wonder that John wept. No one is worthy. If you're familiar with Welsh English mythology or maybe popular Disney films or maybe even the TV adaptation of the 2010s, uh, this scroll is a bit like the sword in the stone from Arthurian legend, from the legend of King Arthur. You see, in the legend of King Arthur, England's in a bit of a state. Everyone's competing for the crown. There's no king. Everyone's having battles and jousting matches and whatnot, trying to compete for the crown. Uh, but there's a sword, Excalibur, stuck in a stone which only the true king can remove. And for years and years, people come to try to remove this sword from the stone. But no one was worthy. England was waiting for a king. And just like this the sword in the stone, this scroll was waiting to be opened. It's God's plan to bring history to its completion, to bring the worship of heaven down to earth. But for thousands upon thousands of years, no one could do it. God's people tried, Israel's kings tried, but no one came anywhere close to bringing the world to worship our creator God. But then, but then Jesus arrived and Jesus changed everything. The goal of history is the worship of God. And second point, Jesus brings the world to worship. Jesus brings the world to worship. If chapter four sets up the problem, God is meant to be worshipped, then chapter five presents us with the solution, Jesus. Look down at chapter five, verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And the lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
Uh, This lamb in picture language is Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead. This lamb bears all the marks of death. It's standing as though it had been slain. Uh, But now it is most definitely alive. Uh, The lamb is standing on the throne, taking the scroll, doing all those things that you just can't do if you're dead. Uh, This is Jesus crucified, died, buried, but then raised from the dead and enthroned in heaven. And the bold claim of chapter five is that Jesus is the one who can achieve the goal of history. Jesus is the one who can open the scroll and bring the worship of heaven down to earth. It is a very bold claim. It is the claim that Easter is at the center of history, that before Jesus, the world was lost, and after Jesus, the world was found. But as we look further through chapter five, we can see the dramatic results of Jesus' death and resurrection. First, Jesus has brought us to worship. Now Jesus is in the picture. The heavenly creatures are singing a new song. Look down at verse nine with me. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. God's people, they had a song that they sang when they were rescued from Egypt, from slavery to Pharaoh. But this new song, it's an upgraded version of that song because Jesus has done something even better. The first song was about rescue from Egypt. This new song is about Easter, when Jesus rescued his people from slavery to sin and death. Our sin separated us from our loving creator God. We were lost, alone and under sentence of death. But Jesus died to pay the price for our sins, to ransom us from slavery to sin and bring us back to God. This is the new song. And unlike the first exodus, uh, this wasn't just for the people of Israel and a few hangers on from other places. Uh, Jesus' death paid the ransom price for people from everywhere. Listen to the song again. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus has rescued people from every place. And not only that, he's restored us to right relationship with God. We were rebels, but now we are God's kingdom. His priests, one people, worshipping him as we were made to. And if you doubt this, it is so easy to see the dramatic results. Uh, The church that started in one small corner of the Middle East has spread worldwide. Uh, Look around you today. Uh, Even today in this room, we are from all over the world. Uh, Different languages, different cultures. Uh, But because of Jesus, we are here, united as one people and worshipping God Each of us once was lost, slaves to sin, worshipping other gods, other things, worshipping ourselves. But each of us here who follows Jesus has been rescued, redeemed and restored to praise God. If you want evidence for the work of Jesus changing everything, look at his church. Look at sinners turning around to live for God, all because of Jesus. 
Jesus has brought us to worship. And not only that, Jesus will bring everything to worship. Jesus accomplishes this in spades. Remember chapter four, uh, the four living creatures worshiping and the 24 elders worshiping. Uh, Well, here in chapter five, AD, after Easter, uh, the praise is so much louder. Uh, The four living creatures, they sing and the 24 elders, they sing their song. And then verse 11, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. A myriad is basically the biggest number that a Greek person could think of. Uh, So myriad of myriads and thousands of thousands is basically John saying a bajillion angels, a gazillion angels, whatever number you want to make up. Uh, Not just 28 heavenly creatures, but countless multitudes singing praises to the Lamb. A bajillion angels. And if that wasn't enough, all creation Remember the worship gap in chapter four, the living creatures worshipped and then the 24 elders worshipped and called on all creation to worship, but then nothing happened. And now look what happens when Jesus is in the picture in verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. It's quite hard to imagine because it's so far from our present reality. Uh, There are lots of us in this room. uh, There are millions of Christians in the world today, uh, but still our worship fills only a small part of the world, a small corner of our office, a small corner of our school, uh, one building on a Sunday or a Tuesday out of thousands upon thousands. But verse 13, it's a little glimpse of the future when everything everywhere, with no exceptions, will praise God. In that day, there will be nothing and no one who does not acknowledge God as king and live for him. Imagine wandering down your street in the new creation and knowing that whatever door you knocked on, you would find a family who worshipped Jesus. Imagine knowing that you could go up to the International Space Station, if that will still exist, or to London Zoo, or to deepest, darkest Epping Forest, or down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, at the deepest point in the ocean. Every person, every creature, everywhere you go will know God and will want to live their lives to praise him. This isn't here fully yet, but as surely as Jesus died and rose, all creation will be full of the knowledge and praise of God. If you have questions about whether Jesus really did die and rise, why not come back next Friday or next Sunday when we're thinking about it a little more or take one of the Gospels at the back of the room. Uh, Eyewitness testimony to the fact that Jesus really did die and really did rise from the dead. Uh, But for now in Revelation, Jesus has, in his death and resurrection, uh, brought all creation to worship God. I've got two implications for us just quickly as we close. First, confidence. It's easy for people to scoff at the claim that Jesus is the centre of history. And maybe you scoffed at it when I said it at the start. He's just a man, people say, a good teacher, an emotional crutch, a happy myth. 
But this glimpse into history from a heavenly perspective really should give us who are Christians confidence. Jesus really is the center of history. Beforehand, history was waiting for someone worthy. But now Jesus is alive and enthroned. He has saved rebels from every place to worship God. Revelation gives us a glimpse of Jesus in all of his glory. And just look at how much better Revelation 5 is than Revelation 4. Remember how much louder the praise is, not just heaven praising God, but people from every tribe and every language and every nation and every tongue. And one day, everything. Jesus' death and resurrection really is at the center of history. We really are on the winning team. We should be confident. And second, something on suffering. One of the things that can make it so hard to believe that Jesus is at the center of history is that he died. We live in a world where the strong and the impressive and the rich and the powerful are in charge. How can this weak and dying man be at the center of history? And yes, Jesus conquered. He has received all power. He is enthroned in heaven. But it's worth looking at how he got there. How did Jesus save his people? How did he bring all creation to worship? He he did it through a suffering, serving, sacrificial death on the cross. We follow a king who laid down his life for his people. So perhaps we should expect that if we're Christians, that is what our lives should look like too. We want to endure, we want to keep going as Christians. Uh, To use the language from a bit earlier in Revelation, we want to conquer. Uh, But in Revelation 5, uh, we hear of Jesus conquering. Uh, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That's what we heard. Uh, But when John looked at that scene, when he looked at the conquering lion, at the Christian's conquering king, what did he see? He saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. If that was what it was like for Jesus, if that's what victory looked like, perhaps we should expect that too. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus really is the centre of history. Thank you that in his death and resurrection, you brought us back to you and that you are building a people from every tribe and every language and every nation and every tongue. Please help us to keep going as Christians in the knowledge that one day all creation will sing praises to you, our God. Amen.